And Colorado, back from the dead, wins a classic. The Reddit College Football Twitter account noted on Saturday, Saturday week two, that it was a rough day for the 1990s powerhouse programs. The Tennessee, the Florida State, Michigan, Nebraska. So I went back, and I and because I'm going to have Ben Bolch, UCLA writer for the LA Times, on the show in a little bit here, I put UCLA in that list too, even though UCLA was nothing even close to a 1990s powerhouse. But they still had some nice years. They were at least trending up at 1.2 decades ago. So those five programs, UCLA, Michigan, Nebraska, Florida State, and Tennessee, this year they have a combined four wins. They're four and six going into week three. They have... Very impressive resume wins over Louisiana Monroe, South Alabama, and Middle Tennessee, and then Michigan's unimpressive win over Army. So they're 4-6. and six. If you go back 22 years ago to 1997, those five teams won a combined 57 games. They went 57-5. and five. Two undefeated teams, uh, Michigan and Nebraska. Yeah, and I get that two decades ago, 22 years ago, it's an eternity for college football programs to, to improve, decline, to fall, rise, or just to do nothing. But imagine telling your 1997 self that in 2019, those five teams will be doing this. And to be clear, there are different levels of, of this. There's the, the Tennessee, the Florida State, the UCLA, this. Then the Nebraska mediocrity may be improving this. And then Michigan, whatever Michigan is doing this. Andrew Dowdy here on the High Motor Podcast. Thanks for dropping by for week three of the college football season. Great show today. I just got off the phone with Kirk Herbstreit this morning. I'm going to play that call as he prepares to go up to Ames for college game day for the first time up there at Iowa State. And then I mentioned Ben Bolt of the LA Times. He's going to join me on the show in a minute. This is the High Motor Podcast, college football week three. Much appreciation to Kirk Herbstreit for hopping on the High Motor Podcast this morning. And Kirk, you're coming off game day in Austin, announcing that game Saturday night too. Uh, but several times per year, you'll do game day in one city and the Saturday night game elsewhere. What's the schedule like for that? Like From the point that game day ends at noon Eastern until you get to the next venue, uh, you know the flight, the transition, all that, do you mind walking uh, us through kind of what everybody doesn't see and how that goes down over those six or seven hours? Yeah, it's it can be a little crazy at times depending on where we are um you're right the first few weeks game day and the game i've called i've been in the same venue which has been nice the same city this week coming up will be the first time um where i'll have to do what you described so game day will be at uh, at ames iowa and as soon as the show is over we will immediately uh leave the show and get to the nearest uh airport or fbo and uh, Disney, who owns ESPN, typically uh, has a plane there for me just to avoid any potential delays um, because they don't have a backup plan for where I'm flying. So they'll fly me this week from Ames to Syracuse, New York. And um, depending on you know the weather and everything else, um, I don't know what it, it might be a, a couple-hour flight. So I'll get there. It's Syracuse for Clemson at Syracuse and immediately head straight over uh, to the stadium. And uh, we have our all-state bus uh, waiting there. And uh, we got, you know, that, that's the highlight of the week for me typically because while I'm flying, I'm working on, you know, the game day show is over. So all the work you put in for the week, is that's finally behind you. So now it's all, everything is focused on calling that game. So I'll be working throughout the rest of the afternoon on the plane. And then once I get to the bus, watching games and working on, you know, finishing up my board and some thoughts with our production team 
uh, and Chris Fowler, uh, this week, Sean McDonough, who's going to be calling the game. And, um, and that's just, that's pretty much what you do, depending on how far you have to go. Sometimes you're flying from Tallahassee to Eugene, Oregon, and, and, you know, it's like a four and a half, five hour flight. It just depends on where you might be headed. And, um, you know, I've, I've never, I guess we came close a couple times last year was probably the closest. They had me call a three thirty game, which was Penn state at Michigan in the big house in Ann Arbor. But it was at three thirty, which is very unusual. Um, they took me off the eight o'clock game. It wasn't a big game that week, so they moved me to the three thirty game. And we were flying from Baton Rouge, um, so we had I think it was Alabama and LSU that week. We were doing game day in Baton Rouge, and we had a really really quick turnaround and a, a pretty decent length of a flight. So we landed at about three ten, and had a police escort to get us. Um, from the small airport there in Ann Arbor over to the stadium. And I remember we were running through the, the, the crowd because, you know, the crowd was still trying to get to their seats. We're trying to kind of snake through them and maneuver through them the best we could and literally got up into the booth, put my headphones on, and we were maybe two or three minutes from kickoff. So that, that was the closest one that I've ever had. But typically we get there with – with ample amount of time to be able to settle in and, and continue to prep and get ready for the game. So what's the backup plan in a situation like that? If you were to, there would have been a, a um, hiccup in, in the travel up to Ann Arbor, does the sideline reporter come up and take the game, or does the play-by-play guy kind of just go as long as he can until you get up there? Um, so really, I don't think is a is a backup plan. I guess it would be Chris Fowler um, or the play-by-play man working the game until I got there. Um, like I said, it's very unusual for me to go to a 3:30 game. They did that particular day. I can't remember who it was, but they did have somebody um, who maybe had called a game on a Thursday or Friday that was it happened to be in that region. So I think they might have been there just in case. But um, typically, there there really isn't an issue because of the, the way we're traveling. Um, so we don't really have any backup plan for the for the primetime games, the, the evening games. Um, but that day, that particular day, because it was so unusual, I think they might have had a backup plan. I just can't remember who exactly it was. Yeah, you mentioned going up to Ames uh, College game day for the first time. Now you mentioned that's a place that you would have loved to uh, have gone in the future. And down in Austin, uh, last week, last time game day was there, 2009. Mac Brown was still at Texas. He was your ESPN colleague for a bit and now back in college football. Others from the booth are now on the sideline at different levels. Have you yourself ever seriously considered coaching instead? You know, I, I, I really did. Um, and it, there, there are times I think about it. I, I really look at myself as kind of a glorified GA. Um, I remember uh, when I got out of college and I was a business major, but my dad had coached and kind of in my blood. I thought about either getting into coaching or broadcasting, and I, I ended up getting into broadcasting. And, and things just moved so quickly down that path that I, I was just entrenched in it. And what I found was each week, um, these coaches have been really, really good to me that when I come in to visit with them, that's probably another aspect of my job that I enjoy the most is, you know, the Thursdays or Fridays that you get a chance to sit down in closed door meetings with coaches and you're just sitting there like a sponge. Um, this, and, and for me, I, I realized right away that if I thought I would just 
fuck strategy from the late 80s, early 90s throughout my career. I wasn't going to make it last very long. And I knew that I had to stay kind of on the cutting edge of, of the industry and, and the trends of the sport. And so I've always looked forward to sitting with coaches and talking to them about spread offense or you know, how to defend the spread or zone read or now run pass options. And uh, these coaches have been so open with me and we're looking at film together and going over different things together that, yeah, it does make you, you, you envision uh, possibly doing that and, and enjoying that. But man, I, I, I could not have asked for anything more as far as a broadcaster and what I've been able to do and what I continue to uh, do every single week and every single year. So part of me would like to go that, that path, but uh, the other part of me realizes I'm, I'm in a pretty good position uh, doing the broadcasting uh, job and, and what what ESPN asked me to do every every week. Have you ever been offered a head coaching job at any level? No, no. I mean, I I think I've I've had some assistant coach opportunities that that I could have gotten into. And sometimes when I step back and think about it, you know, I I see people who are on a fast path in the in the industry, and I you know I think that if I ever did do it, um, I would try to make it you know I, I would not just randomly pick a spot i would try to pick a spot if i were to do it where you'd be a position coach you know for a year or two and become a coordinator um you know for a year or two and then become a head coach you know that i, I look at look at kellen moore it's incredible he's in the nfl but um you know he's fast-tracked himself probably to be a head coach within a couple of years which is very unusual and and a testament to him as a person and, and as a player what he's been able to do but you know, he was holding a clipboard just a year or two, you know, for the Cowboys as a player, and now here he is calling plays for Dak Prescott. So um, there are some unusual cases, but um, I really haven't given it that much thought. But, um, you know, unless I talk to, to someone like yourself who, who asked me about it. But other than that, I've, I've like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with what I'm doing. Some tough times for some coaches and programs right now. Uh, UCLA, Florida State, Tennessee among them. Do you think that, and I don't want to jump the gun here, but I'm curious your thought, do you think that those coaches survive the season or could you see those three programs pulling the plug early, whether that is Jeremy Pruitt, Willie Taggart, and or Chip Kelly? Uh, you know, I, I think in Chip Kelly's case, I, I don't think there's the same kind of intensity to the expectations of, of what you'll feel in Tallahassee and especially in Knoxville. So I don't, I don't know if Chip's necessarily, even though they're off to a really tough start, I don't know if he necessarily is fits in with the other two. Um, you know, probably from following the sport, Tennessee has had their struggles for a number of years, and every year they, they, you know, they think, and I live in Nashville, every year their fan base, despite their struggles, their goal is hey, this this is the year, without a doubt. You know, this is the year we're, we're going to compete in the SEC East, and this is the year we're going to take Georgia down, and we're going to beat Alabama. And they don't hope these things. Like, they know it. And that, that's how they enter their season as a fan base. And, you know, think about that. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a challenging hill to climb. And, and yet, you know, I think they were 5-7 and seven last year, returned a ton of players. From, uh, from last year's team, and here they are losing to Georgia State and BYU, and they haven't gotten into the into the SEC yet. So, you know, Jeremy Pruitt's only in his second year. Willie Taggart only in his second year. 
Um, I, I don't think after week two we can jump the gun and say both these guys are going to be fired. But I do think it's it's safe to say that both of these programs, even though it's only the second year, if they continue to struggle, then their fan bases are going to make things so loud with social media, um, with you know calling uh, call-in shows, that it's just going to be a matter of with the administrators and the administrators and the athletic director, will they cave in to the public? Because if Tennessee ends up going three and nine or Florida state, you know, these teams go three and nine or four and eight, it's going to take a pretty strong AD to withstand uh, what's going to be said about their program and about their coach and, and try to step into year three uh, with, with the same head coach ready for 2020. Going back about 10 years ago, Dabble Sweeney, he was right at the beginning of his run at Clemson, and some people there really wanted him gone, and it took uh, it took a strong AD and president to, to keep him there. And now a decade later, alongside Nick Saban, he's basically running college football. So my question for you is, and this might be almost impossible to predict, but I'm still curious your opinion on it. Who is a, a little-known, uh, unpopular, unknown coach right now that you think could be the guy in college football 10 years from now? Um, You know, I... I guess I would say not just because we're heading there, but just because of previous thoughts that I've had before the, the season has started. I think Matt Campbell is, is kind of an up-and-coming superstar. Um, you know, what what you've watched him do at Iowa State, you know, you've got a long way to go there. But it feels, I don't know for you, but it, it feels like they've become like the new Kansas State uh, of, of the Big 12. You know, I, I think he does a really good job. It's just how he coaches his team. Uh, that, that makes me think that they could eventually – he's either going to continue to at Iowa State or someone's going to pull him away. But I think he's a, a, a future uh, superstar in the business. And the other guy, ironically, in the same conference is Matt Rule, who is at, uh, who is at uh, Temple, a former Penn State assistant who's now at Temple and, of course, now at Baylor. Um, I think he's a guy. And I think you know the NFL actually came after him last year and he decided to stay in college. But he's another guy that, that kind of stands out to me as, as uh, you know, five years, ten years from now. I think we'll be talking about both of those guys, whether they're currently at their same school or if they've moved on to a, a bigger opportunity. Now, I don't want to piss off too many Iowa State fans before you go up to Ames there, but do you have a prediction for Matt Campbell? Do you think he will stick around at Iowa State long term? Yeah, it's funny you say that because I said maybe two years ago, I can't remember when it was, I said, you know, for Iowa State fans to in, enjoy uh, Matt Campbell while they can because he's, he's probably going to be coaching somewhere else pretty soon. And, of course, he ended up extending his contract, and, and, I, you know, and I heard a lot from Iowa State fans after that. And it really wasn't a reflection on Iowa State. It was more of it's just what you see. Um, it's, it's what you see typically in college football when a guy has a, a big year and he comes out of nowhere, and it's it's not necessarily a traditional power. You see an AD who's at a big-time school like a Florida or a UCLA or one of these more recognizable names that, that is somewhat desperate to bring in a, a coach that's going to get their fan base excited. And who better to, to do that than a guy like Matt Campbell, who, who went 8-5. and five. He was 3-9, and nine, I think, in 2016. He, next year, he's 8-5, he's and five, and got a lot of people's attention. And I thought, you know, he would be a guy that, that would probably be gone. And they were able to extend him out. And I, from what I understand, he has a buyout that's so steep 
that he'll probably be in Ames, Iowa for the foreseeable future because I don't think anybody will come in and, and pay uh, what they would have to pay to get him out of there. So I, I really don't see him leaving. I've talked with a number of athletic directors who have looked at it, what they would have to pay to, to be able to get him to leave, and every one of them say, say to me that that's, it's way too steep. So I give credit to Iowa State for pretty much locking him down and, and not allowing uh, other schools to come in there and take him away. So we're talking here Monday morning. We saw a little chaos uh, weeks one and week two, or a little bit maybe uh, mayhem is a more appropriate word with your work with the All-State mayhem moment. What mayhem might we see coming up here in week three? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it, mayhem is, is something that we've, we've kind of had fun with with college football and, and All-State uh, the last couple uh, years. This year, instead of just reacting to it, which we still do on Saturday night, now we try to try to find where uh, we might have mayhem. And I'm, on Tuesdays on with Twitter, I, I try to locate a game where we might see uh, some potential mayhem, whether it's an upset or a great finish or you know, who knows, some kind of basically the story or the buzz of Saturday or of the weekend. And you know, I, I think there might be potential mayhem on not, and again not on just saturday but over the weekend washington state plays houston um you know the cougs are off to a good start again with mike leach and and take on dana holgerson who has a really good quarterback um it wouldn't shock me at all to see the potential uh of some mayhem there that game is on the road for washington state that one kind of kind of stands out and i'm not predicting an upset or anything like that but remember syracuse two years ago beat clemson in the carrier dome and then last year actually had him on the ropes again. Trevor Lawrence went down, and, and uh, the backup came in and converted a big fourth down on the last drive to keep the drive alive, and Clemson was able to survive and beat Syracuse, but it was a close call. So back-to-back years, Hughes has given Clemson um, a battle, and you wonder, even though Syracuse is coming off an embarrassing loss to Maryland, going back home, you wonder if, if we may have some mayhem, whether it's a close call or or anything like that on uh, on Saturday in that game. Hey, Kirk, thanks for the time. Uh, safe travels and enjoy Iowa State this weekend. Thanks a lot, man. Andrew Doughty here from the High Motor Podcast, and I'm here to ask you if you found $100 on the street, would you pick it up or would you keep walking? Of course you would pick it up. So why do you keep predicting winners of football games but not actually betting on them? That is why I go to my bookie. It's fast, it's easy, and they pay you when you win. Let's face it, where you're betting is just as important as who you're betting on. And when you're betting is key. That's why I'm telling you my bookie has the best in-game betting around. They got first-half props, second-half props, or parlays to multiply those winnings if you know you have some winning picks for that week. And no matter how you bet, the NFL and college football season is the best time of the year to do it. And if you join my bookie now, I have a promo code to double that first deposit. You can double your first deposit with the promo code MOTOR, M-O-T-O-R, on mybookie.ag to activate the offer. That's MOTOR on mybookie.ag. Play, win, and get paid on mybookie all football season. Ben Bolts of the Los Angeles Times, he spent his Saturday at what appeared to be a very depressing scene at the Rose Bowl as UCLA dropped to 0-2 with another ugly loss um, after that Cincinnati game, dropping that game to San Diego State. And Ben, after the game, you were tweeting out some coaching numbers from UCLA history, and I know that we're only 14 games in here, but I got to ask you do, you, do you get the feeling that Chip Kelly is safe, or is he already fighting for his job 14 games into his tenure? 
Well, he's just lucky that the uh, fans aren't deciding his fate because they would, a big chunk of them are ready to jump ship on, on, on Chip Kelly. But I must say uh, that that talk is interesting for message boards and, and, and that kind of idle speculation. But he's completely safe. He's completely safe this year. And barring, you know, some kind of unprecedented 0-12 this year, 1-11 next year, I, I, I feel pretty safe in saying that he's safe through the end of next year as well. Um, when the schedule eases up and a lot of these young players are uh, are going to be, uh, you know, juniors and seniors. So I, I think that, you know, obviously the trajectory doesn't look good. The current uh, situation doesn't look good. But uh, uh, Chip Kelly's fine for the time being. Do you get the feeling that he's fine for the time being because it's just so early? Does the buyout have anything to do with it? No, I, I, you know, I think from the very beginning that uh, the administration at UCLA realized that this was pretty close to a total rebuild, not to say that there wasn't talent on the team and they thought that, you know, they could win at a better level than they have been under Chip Kelly. But um, I think that, you know, he went in with the understanding that he could do it his way and, and then that was going to take some time and that they were going to be very patient with him and, and have kind of low expectations for return on investment in these first couple of years. And certainly, you know, he's he's met that kind of low bar of, of not getting much done that's tangible. But, um, you know, I think he would say that he's still laying the groundwork, even though, you know, the phrase that goes back to his Oregon days is watering the bamboo, where you keep, you know, watering this, this thing and, and you don't see any growth. And then, you know, all of a sudden one day it, it sprouts like 90 feet out of the blue. But, um, you know, the, to be honest, fans are, are, are kind of tired of the, the Chip Kelly catchphrases and, and the patience mantra. Uh, they want to see results. So, um, you know, it, it is it is kind of befuddling a little bit. I, I, you know, I was in the camp to think that things were going to be far better. It looked like the end of last season when they beat SC and then took Stanford down to the wire that they were kind of a team on their way. And then you come into this season and taken two giant steps back in these first two games. So it is a, it is a, a big head scratcher right now. And I would say that there is pretty close to a full mo, full blown pandemonium uh, among the fan base about Chip Kelly. Yeah. Let's talk about that pandemonium. You touched on it a few times there. I know that I, I saw a tweet. I'm not sure if it was from you or somebody else. I think it was a shot of the Rose bowl. And I believe the tweet was 15 or 20 minutes before the game. And you almost had to squint to see some of the fans in the stadium. I know that you tweeted about the attendance. I think it was around 35, 36,000, one of the lowest um, in several decades for those of uh, us that, that weren't actually there. What was the atmosphere like? Yeah, it was pretty sad. You know, we're we're in the enclosed press box, and and I, I just looked it up just for uh, just so you know, it was thirty six thousand nine hundred fifty one. It was officially the fourth smallest Rose Bowl crowd that UCLA has had going back to uh, when they moved there in nineteen eighty two, uh, which is pretty stunning, uh, particularly since it was an opening game. Um, but you know, it was it was certainly quiet. You know, there were some boos throughout, um, and then at the end. Uh, when I was walking down to the field, it, the uh, only noise was made by the uh, pocket of San Diego State fans who were chanting "Let's go Aztecs." Um, so, and that was, you know, pretty much uh, most of the fans left were wearing red at that point. So, it was it was a really sad day for UCLA. You know, I've lived in LA since '97 and thought about all the low points under Durrell and, and New Heisel, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure anything can really com- 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 compare to what we're seeing right now. It just feels like not only is the team bad, but the apathy around the program is kind of at a, a low watermark right now. And, and, and I think that even more so than maybe the lack of wins and of wins 
is something that Chip Kelly is going to have to fight because uh, the bottom line is that they need to make money off this team to support the entire athletic department. And if you have 35,000 fans at the Rose Bowl, that's just not going to happen. Going back to what you said, living out in L.A. since since 97, and you've been, even if you haven't been covering UCLA football specifically the entire time, you've been you know in or around that program for, for a long time now, and you said you can't really remember anything like this. Is there anything that comes close to to this, like those final Mora days or anything before? Is anything even close to what we're seeing right now around UCLA football? Well, I think that the people were most concerned with Mora was the trajectory headed in the wrong direction. I mean, obviously he had tremendous early success and then just kind of uh, went backward over those final, you know, three seasons. But I don't remember anything where there was kind of a, an anger and an apathy matching this. I mean, I think during maybe late in the New Heisel tenure, there was just kind of a readiness to move on. There was the 50 to nothing loss at SC, which, you know, was a breaking point for him, and that, that did it. Um, but, you know, th- there was never a sustained really kind of losing streak under – under Rick Neuheisel that, that, that made you think that, um, you know, it was quite this bad as it's gotten. And, and we should qualify to say, you know, it's only 13 games into Chip Kelly's tenure. Things could become very different. But, you know, everybody's looking for that trajectory and that tangible evidence, and, and right now it's just not there. And even though you had mentioned uh, that UCLA kind of saw us as almost a total rebuild, do you get the sense that UCLA expected it to be this bad? No, I, I think that um, I think the expectation was that you know pretty similar to what we saw last year. I think you know maybe maybe another win or two, you know maybe you know beat Cincinnati in the opener last year, maybe pull out one other game. Um, but you know I, I think they were happy with mostly the the way last season ended. And then in this this year, I think the the, the baseline expectation was you know, for six wins and you know maybe the the last bowl slot that the Pac-12s allotted. I think, and I think that was a pretty realistic expectation. And then you get to year three when, you know, Chip's got his scheme in place and a veteran team, and and then that's when you really take off and contend for the Pac-12 South. And then, you know, any, every every year beyond that, you want to be contending for not just that, but you know, Rose Bowl and and and, and college football playoffs. So this really sets back kind of the timeline that I think people were hoping for, um, and and you just have to wonder, you know, now I'm looking at. What what can they really do this year? And I, I and it's hard to envision a season that ends better than four and eight. And and you know maybe they can catch some momentum at the end of next uh, of this season, heading into next season. But then that leads to the well they they had that last year and it didn't lead to anything. So you know this year it's a, maybe a little too early to write it off. They haven't started Pac-12 play, but it it certainly doesn't look good. They've got number four Oklahoma next week and then start Pac-12 with back-to-back road games against. Washington State and Arizona, and that's you know that's two more potential losses. So we could be looking at 0-5 to start the the season for a second consecutive year, and that's just a, a real sad place for UCLA to be. From afar, when I'm watching the program, obviously I'm not there, you know, within the program like you are. From afar, I can see you know, you know the offensive uh, ineptitude. I can see the mistakes, the penalties, the turnovers, and all that stuff. What can you see that maybe not all of us are seeing from 10,000 feet? Do you see you know one or even two big problems with, with the program right now? Or are there several uh, you know little or, or mediocre to big problems kind of adding up to this this really uh, pitiful team? Well, I think one of the million dollar questions is you know Chip Kelly talked about tailoring your scheme to the to personnel and, and and my big question is is he really doing that is this is this kind of multiple pro style heavy 
offense the, the best match for uh, – best fit, I should say, for a quarterback who really has only been playing the position for two two full seasons going back to high school uh, and wasn't really expected to play much at all last year and got thrown into the, the mix. Um, is this is this something that they need to simplify for him uh, and and really you know maximize uh, his his talents and build some confidence with him and then kind of go from there because right now it's like Chip Kelly's trying to outsmart everybody uh, and he may be outsmarting himself is is the way I see it just because it's not working for this offense and and and, and we must we must add in there that they they've made a lot of self-inflicted wounds. I think they've got six turnovers in the first two games, and you know Chip Kelly can't can't really be blamed for that. But even even when they're not turning the ball over, I see an offense that doesn't look like it's clicking or confident uh, or really you know has any chance of, of sustaining drives. So that that's the big thing for me. I know you said it's really early to be even actually having real hot seat talk for for Chip Kelly, but is there any concern from you that? You know, Chip, after being gone for what, he left Oregon, I think, in 12, so he was gone for, you know, out of college football for six full years. Is there any concern that because the game of college football changed so dramatically, even two, three years, let alone six years, that he might just be in over his head now? Well, you know, a lot of people are saying, why is he running the blur? And, you know, I'm not sure that the blur is what, it, you know, what obviously the, the, the offense he ran at Oregon would be the perfect fit or, or necessary at UCLA. But I do think he's trying to prove a point that, you know, his NFL offense that didn't work uh, with the 49ers uh, that he went to, you know, after abandoning tempo, that style of offense, he, he can master it and it can win. Uh, and, and that he can kind of show everybody that, you know, he's, he's the smartest guy in the room, so to speak. Um, but, it, you know, I, I, it just goes back to, it feels like he's being stubborn and, and not, uh, realizing that he needs to to make changes and adapt to uh, what he has with this team, and, and that is a young quarterback who really needs to be kind of brought along more easily and and slowly than than what he's demanding right now. Where's the optimism for UCLA fans? We spent the last ten minutes talking about everything that's wrong with the program, but where, where is the optimism right now as they sit 0 two in year two of Chip Kelly? Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, as poorly as things have gone these first two weeks, I, I don't expect them to beat Oklahoma, but I think they'll have a much better showing next week, and I think that will be a step in the right direction. And then, you know, maybe they can go on the road and upset Washington State and, and really kind of, you know, start a turnaround there. Uh, I'm not saying I'm expecting that, but I think that it's not out of the, the realm of possibility. Um, you know, I see some pretty – ticked off uh, players right now and then you know they got to take it upon themselves and not just wait for Chip Kelly to kind of give them the blueprint they have to go out there and make the plays to win these games so um, you know there is some there's a considerable amount of talent on this team Um, they need to put it together and uh, you know maybe they'll surprise us. When you say ticked off players, do you get the sense that they're ticked off just of how the results are going or something specific, that the system, how the program is operating right now? Anything specific, why they might be ticked off? Well, I mean, obviously, if you're not winning, you're not going to be happy. But, you know, I, nobody said this, but I, I have to suspect that, you know, playing for Chip Kelly is a very demanding endeavor. Um, you know, he's very businesslike. He's very into the details. And, you know, I think that he really needs uh, success to make it all worth it. And when you're putting in the crazy time and effort and, and uh, accountability that he demands and you're not winning, I, I think it's only human nature to say, what are we doing this for? Why this isn't working? You know, is it worth it? Um, so I know that that sentiment has got to be building to some level in the locker room. 
And it's going to be important that somebody kind of take charge there and say, hey, you know, this sucks right now, but let's let's stick with it and, and pull together and, and maybe we can we can do something with this. But I know it can't be easy, especially given uh, that last year they started on five and right now it's it's looking like we could be in for a repeat of that. Last thing for you, Ben, you, you touched on their schedule a little bit. You get Oklahoma at home uh, this week and then go up to Washington State, Arizona, Oregon State. After that, you, you said that maybe we could be seeing a repeat of 0-5. So let me ask you, where is the first win on this schedule if you had to predict one? Yeah, I mean, the easy predict is uh, is game six. It's Oregon State at the Rose Bowl. Um, you know, at that point, you, you know, that they're – Coming home 0-5, and, 5 and it, as, as, as bad as that would be, I would still put UCLA as a solid, you know, 10-point favorite uh, over Oregon State. So I think that that's – and that's the thing, though. You, you look at the schedule, that's really the only game where I would say that they're going to be prohibitive favorites uh, going in unless they can really start to make some, uh, some tangible improvements. Yeah, and then they go to Stanford after that and get an Arizona State team uh, at home that looked uh, really bad against Sacramento State last week. And All right, that's Ben Bosch at Los Angeles Times. Hey, Ben, thanks for dropping by again. I uh, hope you enjoy the week and safe travels coming up here. All right, thank you so much. Oh,